0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 367 of Forgotten Classics, where we just recently began reading The House of a Thousand Candles, a mystery. First, though, let's talk about a podcast highlight. This is one I discovered some time ago, And then, you know, the first season was done, the second season hadn't begun, and for some reason I lost track of it until I was reminded of it recently, Wooden Overcoats. It is (laughs) a comedy about rival funeral directors in the village of Piffling Vale on the tiny island of Piffling in the English Channel. And so for generations, Fun Funerals has been the only business of its kind. They haven't needed anything more. They've got just a tiny village. And it's run by Rudyard Fun and his twin sister, Antigone. And a helper and a mouse. It's more important than you might think. And then one day, the unthinkable happens. The antiques dealer across the street dies, and they're just looking forward to getting the body in the ground on time, which is all they ever strive for. Everything else can go wrong and that's their standard. But when the antique shop is sold, a new funeral home opens up And it's pretty great. It's got wonderful music. It's got all kinds of flowers. They have free coffee and snacks and chocolate truffles. And they're offering special deals. And pretty soon the villagers are all using the other funeral home run by Eric Chapman. He's handsome. He's sexy. Seems like a super nice guy. And, of course, Rudyard just has a huge meltdown, plus their business is struggling. So every episode after the first one brings us some new scheme of Rudyard's to get rid of Eric Chapman and restore the status quo. Except of course we know they're going to all fail spectacularly and that's half the fun. And also different people are attracted to Eric. Eric's attracted to somebody who's not interested in him. So we have these dynamics going on at the same time. I've only listened to the first season and the second season Didn't really do quite as well as the first from what I heard from my informant who reminded me But the third season gets you back on track. So I Say even if you try the first eight episodes, which is the first season, it's a lot of fun. Definitely try it out Now let's get on with our own little isolated situation We don't have a little island in the English Channel, but we will have an isolated estate where our hero has to live for a year to fulfill the stipulations of his grandfather's will. It doesn't sound like he's going to inherit that much, but I do love the fact that he says repeatedly, oh, my grandfather, he was a grand old man and I didn't treat him well enough and I'm going to do this last thing for him. Even though I'm going to be bored stiff because I've been wasting my own fortune around the world, going to Constantinople, Italy, Africa, and so forth. So I like the twist in that what the grandfather requires is essentially responsibility. But what we see is instead of having to fulfill some requirement that is going to make them afraid, going to make them have to stretch themselves, well, I guess this could be called stretching yourself, but it's the opposite of what we usually think. We usually think go off, have a big adventure, do all these things you've never done. This guy has to stay home and uh, he might be pretty bored. He doesn't seem like a reader, he doesn't seem like somebody who's happy just hanging out by himself with his grandfather's mysterious servant to take care of him. So that's the setup. Plus, if you don't stay there for a year, I'm giving the house to somebody else, this lady. And if you guys get married within five years of meeting, neither of you gets anything. Well, duh. Of course we know we're going to meet her. We don't know what she'll be like, but we can tell there's probably going to be some romance based on that marriage clause, which was really bizarre, I think. Anyway, we're going to see what the estate's like this time and meet some new people. And maybe, just maybe, mysterious events will begin to unfold. Let's dive in.
1: Chapter 3. The House of a Thousand Candles. Annandale derives its chief importance from the fact that two railway lines intersect there, The Chicago Express paused only for a moment, while the porter deposited my things beside me on the platform. Light streamed from the open door of the station, a few idlers paced the platform, staring into the windows of the cars. The village hackman languidly solicited my business. Suddenly out of the shadows came a tall, curious figure of a man, clad in a long ulster. As I write, it is with a quickening of the sensation I received on the occasion of my first meeting with Bates his lank gloomy figure rises before me now and i hear his deep melancholy voice as touching his hat respectfully he said beg pardon sir is this mr glenarm i am bates from glenarm house mr pickering wired me to meet you sir yes to be sure i said the hackman was already gathering up my traps and i gave him my trunk checks how far is it i asked my eyes resting a little regretfully i must confess on the rear lights of the vanishing train two miles sir bates replied there's no other way over but the hack in winter in summer the steamer comes right into our dock my legs need stretching i'll walk i suggested drawing the cool air into my lungs it was a still starry october night and its freshness was grateful after the hot sleeper bates accepted the suggestion without comment we walked to the end of the platform where the hackman was already tumbling my trunks about and after we had seen them piled on his nondescript wagon i followed bates down through the broad quiet street of the village there was more of annandale than i had imagined and several tall smokestacks loomed near and there in the thin starlight brickyards sir said bates waving his hand at the stacks it's a considerable centre for that kind of business bricks without straw i asked as we passed a radiant saloon that blazed upon the boardwalk. Beg pardon, sir, but such places are the ruin of men. On which remark I based a mental note that Bates wished to impress me with his own rectitude. He swung along beside me, answering questions with dogged brevity. Clearly here was a man who had reduced human intercourse to a basis of necessity. I was to be shut up with him for a year, and he was not likely to prove a cheerful jailer my feet struck upon a gravelled highway at the end of the village street and i heard suddenly the lapping of water it's the lake sir this road leads right out to the house bates explained i was doomed to meditate pretty steadily i imagined on the beauty of the landscape in these parts and i was rejoiced to know that it was not all cheerless prairie or gloomy woodland the wind freshened cud blew sharply upon us off the water the fishing's quite good in season "'Mr. Glenarm used to take great pleasure in it.' "'Bass, yes, sir.' "'Mr. Glenarm held there was nothing quite equal to a black bass.' "'I liked the way the fellow spoke of my grandfather. He was evidently a loyal retainer. No doubt he could summon from the past many pictures of my grandfather, and I determined to encourage his confidence. Any resentment I felt on first hearing the terms of my grandfather's will had passed. He had treated me as well as I deserved.' and the least i could do was to accept the penalty he had laid upon me in a sane and amiable spirit this train of thought occupied me as we tramped along the highway the road now led away from the lake and through a heavy wood presently on the right loomed a dark barrier and i put out my hand and touched a wall of rough stone that rose to a height of about eight feet what is this bates i asked this is glenarmland sir the wall was one of your grandfather's ideas It's a quarter of a mile long, and cost him a pretty penny, I warrant you. The road turns off from the lake now, but the Glenarm property is all lake front. So there was a wall about my prison house. I grinned cheerfully to myself. When, a few moments later, my guide paused at an arched gateway into the long wall, drew from his overcoat a bunch of keys, and fumbled at the lock of an iron gate, I felt the spirit of adventure quicken within me. The gate clicked behind us and Bates found a lantern and lighted it with the ease of custom. "'I use this gate, because it's nearer. The regular entrance is farther down the road. Keep close, sir, as the timber isn't much cleared.' The undergrowth was indeed heavy, and I followed the lantern of my guide with difficulty. In the darkness the place seemed as wild and rough as a tropical wilderness. "'Only a little farther,' rose Bates' voice ahead of me, and then, "'There's the light, sir.' And lifting my eyes, as I stumbled over the roots of a great tree, I saw for the first time the dark outlines of Glenarm House. "'Here we are, sir,' exclaimed Bates, stamping his feet upon a walk. I followed him to what I assumed to be the front door of the house, where a lamp shone brightly at either side of a massive entrance. Bates flung it open without ado, and I stepped quickly into a great hall that was lighted dimly by candles, fastened into brackets on the walls.' "'I hope you have not expected too much, Mr. Glenarm,' said Bates, with a tone of mild apology. "'It's very incomplete, for living purposes.' "'Well, we've got to make the best of it,' I answered, though without much cheer. The sound of our steps reverberated and echoed in the well of a great staircase. There was not, as far as I could see, a single article of furniture in the place. "'Here's something you'll like better, sir,' and Bates paused far down the hall and opened a door." a single candle made a little pool of light in what i felt to be a large room i was prepared for a disclosure of barren ugliness and waited in heart-sick foreboding for the silent guide to reveal a dreary prison please sit here sir said bates while i make a better light he moved through the dark room with perfect ease struck a match lighted a taper and went swiftly and softly about he touched the taper to one candle after another they seemed to be everywhere and won from the dark a faint twilight that yielded slowly to a growing mellow splendour of light i have often watched the acolytes in dim cathedrals of the old world set countless candles ablaze on magnificent altars always with awe for the beauty of the spectacle but in this unknown house the austere serving-man summoned from the shadows a lovelier and more bewildering enchantment youth alone of beautiful things is lovelier than light the lines of the walls receded as the light increased and the raftered ceiling drew away luring the eyes upward i rose with a smothered exclamation on my lips and stared about snatching off my hat in reverence as the spirit of the place wove its spell about me everywhere there were books they covered the walls to the ceiling with only long french windows and an enormous fireplace breaking the line above the fireplace a massive dark oak chimney-breast further emphasized the grand scale of the room from every conceivable place from shelves built for the purpose from brackets that thrust out long arms among the books from a great crystal chandelier suspended from the ceiling and from the breast of the chimney innumerable candles blazed with dazzling brilliancy i exclaimed in wonder and pleasure as bates paused his sorcerer's wand in hand Mr. Glenarm was very fond of candlelight. He liked to gather up candlesticks, and his collection is very fine. He called his place the House of a Thousand Candles. There's only about a hundred here, but it was one of his conceits that when the house was finished, there would be a thousand lights. He had quite a joking way, your grandfather. It suited his humour to call it a thousand. He enjoyed his own pleasantries, sir.' "'I fancy he did,' I replied, staring in bewilderment oil lamps might be more suited to your own taste, sir but your grandfather would not have them old brass and copper were specialties with him and he had a particular taste mr Glenharm had in glass candlesticks he held that the crystal was most effective of all i'll go and let in the baggageman and then serve you some supper he went somberly out and i examined the room with amazed and delighted eyes it was fifty feet long and half as wide the hardwood floor was covered with handsome rugs every piece of furniture was quaint or interesting carved in the heavy oak panelling above the fireplace in large old english letters was the inscription the spirit of man is the candle of the lord and on either side great candelabra sent long arms across the hearth all the books seemed related to architecture german and french works stood side by side among those english and american authorities I found archaeology represented in a division where all the titles were Latin or Italian. I opened several cabinets that contained sketches and drawings, all in careful order, and in another I found an elaborate card catalogue, evidently the work of a practiced hand. The minute examination was too much for me. I threw myself into a great chair that might have been spoil from a cathedral, satisfied to enjoy the general effect. To find an apartment so handsome and so marked by good taste in the midst of an Indiana wood staggered me. To be sure, in approaching the house I had seen only a dark bulk that conveyed no sense of its character or proportions, and certainly the entrance hall had not prepared me for the beauty of this room. I was so lost in contemplation that I did not hear a door open behind me. The respectful, mournful voice of Bates announced, "'There's a bite ready for you, sir,' I followed him through the hall to a small, high wainscoted room, where a table was simply set. "'This is what Mr. Glenarm called the refectory. The dining-room on the other side of the house is unfinished. He took his own meals here. The library was the main thing with him. He never lived to finish the house, more's the pity, sir. He would have made something very handsome of it, if he'd had a few years more. But he hoped, sir, that you'd see it completed.' it was his wish sir yes to be sure i replied he brought cold fowl and a salad and produced a bit of stilton of unmistakable authenticity i trust the ale is cool to your liking it's your grandfather's favourite if i may say it sir i liked the fellow's humility he served me with a grave deference and an accustomed hand candles and crystal holders shed an agreeable light upon the table the room was snug and comfortable and hickory logs in a small fireplace crackled cheerily. If my grandfather had designed to punish me with loneliness as his weapon, his shade, if it lurked near, must have been grievously disappointed. I had long been inured to my own society, I had often eaten my bread alone, and I found a pleasure in the quiet of the strange unknown house. There stole over me, too, the satisfaction that I was at last obeying a wish of my grandfather's, that I was doing something he would have me do i was touched by the traces everywhere of his interest in what was to him the art of arts there was something quite fine in his devotion to it the little refectory had its air of distinction though it was without decoration there had been we always said in the family something whimsical or even morbid in my grandsire's devotion to architecture but i felt that it had really appealed to something dignified and noble in his own mind and character and a gentler mood than i had known in years possessed my heart He had asked little of me, and I determined that in that little I would not fail. Bates gave me my coffee, put matches within reach, and left the room. I drew out my cigarette case and was holding it half-opened, when the glass in the window back of me cracked sharply. A bullet whistled over my head, struck the opposite wall, and fell, flattened and marred, on the table under my hand. Chapter 4 a voice from the lake i ran to the window and peered out into the night the wood through which we had approached the house seemed to encompass it the branches of a great tree brushed the panes i was tugging at the fastening of the window when i became aware of Bates at my elbow did something happen sir his unbroken calm angered me some one had fired at me through a window and i had narrowly escaped being shot i resented the unconcern with which this servant accepted the situation. "'Nothing worth mentioning. Somebody tried to assassinate me, that's all,' I said, in a voice that failed to be calmly ironical. I was still fumbling at the catch of the window. Allow me, sir,' and he threw up the sash with an ease that increased my irritation. I leaned out and tried to find some clue to my assailant. Bates opened another window and surveyed the dark landscape with me. "'It was a shot from without, was it, sir?' you didn't suppose i shot it myself did you he examined the broken pane and picked up the bullet from the table it's a rifle ball i should say the bullet was half flattened by its contact with the wall it was a cartridge ball of large calibre and may have been fired from either rifle or pistol it's very unusual sir i wheeled upon him angrily and found him fumbling with the bit of metal a troubled look in his face he at once continued as though anxious to allay my fears quite accidental most likely probably boys on the lake are shooting at ducks i laughed out so suddenly that bates started back in alarm you idiot i roared seizing him by the collar with both hands and shaking him fiercely you fool do the people around here shoot ducks at night do they shoot waterfowl with elephant guns and fire at people through windows just for fun i threw him back against the table so that it leaped away from him and he fell prone on the floor "'Get up,' I commanded, "'and fetch a lantern!' He said nothing, but did as I bade him. We traversed the long cheerless hall to the front door, and I sent him before me into the woodland. My notions of the geography of the region were the vaguest, but I wished to examine for myself the premises that evidently contained a dangerous prowler. I was very angry, and my rage increased as I followed Bates, who had suddenly retired within himself." we stood soon beneath the lights of the refractory window the ground was covered with leaves which broke crisply under our feet what lies beyond here i demanded about a quarter of mile of woods sir and then the lake go ahead i ordered straight to the lake i was soon stumbling through rough underbrush similar to that through which we had approached the house bates swung along confidently enough ahead of me pausing occasionally to hold back the branches i began to feel as my rage abated that i had set out on a foolish undertaking i was utterly at sea as to the character of the grounds i was following a man whom i had not seen until two hours before and whom i began to suspect of all manner of designs upon me it was wholly unlikely that the person who had fired into the windows would lurk about and moreover the light of the lantern the crack of the leaves and the breaking of the boughs advertised our approach loudly I am, however, a person given to steadfastness in error, if nothing else, and I plunged along behind my guide with a grim determination to reach the margin of the lake, if for no other reason than to exercise my authority over the custodian of this strange estate. A bush slapped me sharply, and I stopped to rub the sting from my face. "'Are you hurt, sir?' asked Bates solicitously, turning with the lantern. "'Of course not,' I snapped. "'I'm having the time of my life.' "'Are there no paths in this jungle?' "'Not through here, sir.' "'It was Mr. Glenarm's idea not to disturb the wood at all. He was very fond of walking through the timber.' "'Not at night, I hope. Where are we now?' "'Quite near the lake, sir.' "'Then go on.' "'I was out of patience with Bates, with the pathless woodland, and, I must confess, with the spirit of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather. We came out presently upon a gravelly beach and Bates stamped suddenly, on planking. "'This is Glenarm Dock, sir, and that's the boathouse.' He waved his lantern toward a low structure that rose dark beside us. As we stood silent, peering out into the starlight, I heard distinctly the dip of a paddle and the soft gliding motion of a canoe. "'It's a boat, sir,' whispered Bates, hiding the lantern under his coat. I brushed past him and crept to the end of the dock. The paddle dipped on silently and evenly in the still water, but the sound grew fainter. A canoe is the most graceful, the most sensitive, the most inexplicable contrivance of man. With its paddle you may dip up stars along quiet shores, or steal into the very harbour of dreams. I knew that furtive splash instantly, and knew that a trained hand wielded the paddle. My boyhood summers in the Maine woods were not, I frequently find, wholly wasted." the owner of the canoe had evidently stolen close to the glenarm dock and had made off when alarmed by the noise of our approach through the wood have you a boat here the boathouse is locked and i haven't the key with me sir he replied without excitement of course you haven't it i snapped full of anger at his tone of irreproachable respect and at my own helplessness i had not even seen the place by daylight and the woodland behind me and the lake at my feet were things of shadow and mystery. In my rage, I stamped my foot. "'Lead the way back!' I roared. I had turned through the woodland when suddenly there stole across the water a voice. A woman's voice, deep, musical, and deliberate. "'Really, I shouldn't be so angry if I were you,' it said, with a lingering note on the word angry. "'Who are you? What are you doing there?' I bawled. "'Just enjoying a little tranquil thought.' was the drawling, mocking reply. Far out upon the water I heard the dip and glide of the canoe, and saw faintly its outline for a moment, then it was gone. The lake, the surrounding wood, were an unknown world, the canoe a boat of dreams. Then again came the voice. "'Good-night, merry gentlemen.' "'It was a lady, sir,' remarked Bates, after we had waited silently for a full minute. "'How clever you are!' I sneered. I suppose ladies prowl around here at night, shooting ducks, or into people's houses. It would seem quite likely, sir. I should have liked to cast him into the lake, but he was already moving away, the lantern swinging at his side. I followed him, back through the woodland, to the house. My spirits quickly responded to the cheering influence of the great library. I stirred the fire on the hearth into life, and sat down before it, tired from my tramp. I was mystified and perplexed by the incident that had already marked my coming. It was possible, to be sure, that the bullet which narrowly missed my head in the little dining-room had been a wild shot that carried no evil intent. I dismissed at once the idea that it might have been fired from the lake. It had crashed through the glass with too much force to have come so far, and, moreover, I could scarcely imagine even a rifle-ball's finding an unimpeded right-of-way through so dense a strip of wood. I found it difficult to get rid of the idea that someone had taken a pot-shot at me. The woman's mocking voice from the lake added to my perplexity. It was not, I reflected, such a voice as one might expect to hear from a country girl, nor could I imagine any errand that would excuse a woman's presence abroad on an October night whose cool air inspired first confidences with fire and lamp. There was something haunting in that last cry across the water— it kept repeating itself over and over in my ears it was a voice of quality of breeding and charm good-night merry gentlemen in indiana i reflected rustics young or old men or women were probably not greatly given to salutations of just this temper bates now appeared beg pardon sir but your room's ready whenever you wish to retire i looked about in search of a clock there are no timepieces in the house mr glenarm your grandfather was quite opposed to them he had a theory sir that they were conducive as he said to idleness he considered that a man should work by his conscience sir and not by the clock the one being more exacting than the other i smiled as i drew out my watch as much at bates's solemn tones and grim lean visage as at his quotation from my grandsire but the fellow puzzled and annoyed me His unobtrusive black clothes, his smoothly brushed hair, his shaven face, awakened an antagonism in me. "'Bates, if you didn't fire that shot through the window, who did? Will you answer me that?' "'Yes, sir. If I didn't do it, it's quite a large question who did. I'll grant you that, sir.' I stared at him. He met my gaze directly without flinching, nor was there anything insolent in his tone or attitude. He continued, "'I didn't do it, sir.' I was in the pantry when I heard the crash in the refectory window. The bullet came from out of doors, as I should judge, sir. The facts and conclusions were undoubtedly with Bates, and I felt that I had not acquitted myself credibly in my effort to fix the crime on him. My abuse of him had been tactless, to say the least, and I now tried another line of attack. Of course, Bates, I was merely joking. What's your own theory of the matter?' "'I have no theory, sir.' Mr. Glenarm always warned me against theories. He said, if you will pardon me, there was great danger in the speculative mind. The man spoke with a slight Irish accent, which in itself puzzled me. I have always been attentive to the peculiarities of speech, and his was not the brogue of the Irish servant class. Larry Donovan, who was English-born, used on occasions an exaggerated Irish dialect that was wholly different from the smooth liquid tones of Bates but more things than his speech were to puzzle me in this man. "'The person in the canoe, how do you account for her?' I asked. "'I haven't accounted for her, sir. There's no women on these grounds, or any sort of person, except ourselves. But there are neighbours, farmers, people of some kind must live along the lake.' "'A few, sir. And then there's the school, quite a bit beyond your own west wall.' His slight reference to my proprietorship, my own wall, as he put it, pleased me, oh yes there is a school girls yes mr pickering mentioned it but the girls hardly paddle on the lake at night at this season hunting ducks should you say Bates? i don't believe they do any shooting mr glenarm it's a pretty strict school i judge sir from all accounts and the teachers are they all women they're the sisters of st agatha i believe they call them i sometimes see them walking abroad they're very quiet neighbors and they go away in the summer usually except sister Teresa. the school's her regular home sir and there's the little chapel quite near the wall the young minister lives there and the gardener's the only other man on the grounds so my immediate neighbors were protestant nuns and schoolgirls with a chaplain and a gardener thrown in for variety still the chaplain might be a social resource there was nothing in the terms of my grandfather's will to prevent my cultivating the acquaintance of a clergyman it even occurred to me that this might be part of the game my soul was to be watched over by a rural priest while there being nothing else to do i was to give my attention to the study of architecture bates my guard and housekeeper was brushing the hearth with deliberate care show me my cell i said rising and i'll go to bed he brought from somewhere a great brass candelabra that held a dozen lights and explained this was mr glenarm's habit "'He always used this one to go to bed with. "'I'm sure he'd wish you to have it, sir.' "'I thought I detected something like a quaver in the man's voice. "'My grandfather's memory was dear to him,' I reflected, "'and I was moved to compassion for him. "'How long were you with Mr. Glenarm Bates?' I inquired, "'as I followed him into the hall. Five years, sir. "'He employed me the year you went abroad. "'I remember very well his speaking of it. "'He greatly admired you, sir.' he led the way holding the cluster of lights high for my guidance up the broad stairway the hall above shared the generous lines of the whole house but the walls were white and hard to the eye rough planks had been laid down for a floor and beyond the light of the candles lay a dark region that gave out ghostly echoes as the loose boards rattled under our feet i hope you'll not be too disappointed sir said bates pausing a moment before opening a door it's all quite unfinished but comfortable i should say quite comfortable open the door he was not my host and i did not relish his apology i walked past him into a small sitting-room that was in a way a miniature of the great library below open shelves filled with books lined the apartment to the ceiling on every hand save for a small fireplace a cabinet and table were built into the walls in the centre of the room was a long table with writing materials set in nice order i opened a handsome case and found that it contained a set of draughtsman's instruments i groaned aloud mr glenarm preferred this room for working the tools were his very own sir the devil they were i exclaimed irascibly i snatched a book from the nearest shelf and threw it open on the table it was the tower its early use for purposes of defence london eighteen sixteen i closed it with a slam the sleeping room is beyond sir i hope don't you hope any more i growled and it doesn't make any difference whether i'm disappointed or not certainly not sir he replied in a tone that made me ashamed of myself the adjoining bedroom was small and meagrely furnished the walls were untinted and were relieved only by prints of english cathedrals french chateaux and like suggestions of the best things known to architecture The bed was the commonest iron type, and the other articles of furniture were chosen with a strict regard for utility. My trunks and bags had been carried in, and Bates asked from the door for my commands. "'Mr. Glenarm always breakfasted at seven-thirty, sir, as near as he could hit it without a timepiece, and he was quite punctual. His ways were a little odd, sir. He used to prowl about at night a good deal, and there was no following him.' "'I fancy I shan't do much prowling,' I declared. "'And my grandfather's breakfast hour will suit me exactly, Bates.' "'If there's nothing further, sir.' "'That's all.' "'And Bates?' "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm.' "'Of course you understand that I didn't really mean to imply that you had fired that shot at me.' "'I beg you not to mention it, Mr. Glenarm.' "'But it was a little queer. If you should gain any light on the subject, let me know.' "'Certainly, sir.' "'But I believe, Bates, that we'd better keep the shades down at night. These duck-hunters hereabouts are apparently reckless.' and you might attend to these now and every evening hereafter i wound my watch as he obeyed i admit that in my heart i still half suspected the fellow of complicity with the person who had fired at me through the dining-room window it was rather odd i reflected that the shade should have been opened though i might account for this by the fact that this curious unfinished establishment was not subject to the usual laws governing orderly housekeeping bates was evidently aware of my suspicions and he remarked, drawing down the last of the plain green shades, "'Mr. Glenarm never drew them, sir. It was a saying of his, if I may repeat his words, that he liked the open. These are eastern windows, and he took a quiet pleasure in letting the light waken him. It was one of his oddities, sir.' "'To be sure. That's all, Bates.' He gravely bade me good-night, and I followed him to the outer door, and watched his departing figure— lighted by a single candle that he had produced from his pocket i stood for several minutes listening to his step tracing it through the hall below as far as my knowledge of the house would permit then in unknown regions i could hear the closing of doors and drawing of bolts verily my jailer was a person of painstaking habits i opened my travelling case and distributed its contents on the dressing-table i had carried through all my adventures a folding leather photograph holder containing portraits of my father and mother, and of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather, and this I set up on the mantel in the little sitting-room. I felt to-night, as never before, how alone I was in the world, and a need for companionship and sympathy stirred in me. It was with a new and curious interest that I peered into my grandfather's shrewd old eyes. He used to come and go fitfully at my father's house, but my father had displeased him in various ways that I need not recite, and my father's death had left me with an estrangement which i had widened by my own acts now that i had reached glenarm my mind reverted to pickering's estimate of the value of my grandfather's estate although john marshall glenarm was an eccentric man he had been able to accumulate a large fortune and yet i had allowed the executor to tell me that he had died comparatively poor in so readily accepting the terms of the will and burying myself in a region of which i knew nothing I had cut myself off from the usual channels of counsel. If I left the place to return to New York, I should simply disinherit myself. At Glenarm I was, and there I must remain to the end of the year. I grew bitter against Pickering, as I reflected upon the ease with which he had got rid of me. I had always satisfied myself that my wits were as keen as his, but I wondered now whether I had not stupidly put myself in his power. Chapter Five a red tam-o-shanter i looked out on the bright october morning with a renewed sense of isolation trees crowded about my windows many of them still wearing their festal colours scarlet and brown and gold with the bright green of some sulking companion standing out here and there with startling vividness i put on an old corduroy outing suit and heavy shoes ready for a tramp abroad and went below the great library seemed larger than ever when i beheld it in the morning light i opened one of the french windows and stepped out on to a stone terrace where i gained a fair view of the exterior of the house which proved to be a modified tudor with battlements and two towers one of the latter was only half finished and to it in other parts of the house the workmen's scaffolding still clung heaps of stone and piles of lumber were scattered about in great disorder the house extended partly along the edge of a ravine through which a slender creek ran toward the lake the terrace became a broad balcony immediately outside the library, and beneath it the water bubbled pleasantly around heavy stone pillars. Two pretty rustic bridges spanned the ravine, one near the front entrance, the other at the rear. My grandfather had begun his house on a generous plan, but buried as it was among the trees, it suffered from lack of perspective. However, on one side toward the lake was a fair meadow, broken by a water-tower, and just beyond the west dividing wall i saw a little chapel and still farther in the same direction the outlines of the buildings of st agatha's were vaguely perceptible in another strip of woodland the thought of gentle nuns and schoolgirls as neighbours amused me all i asked was that they should keep to their own side of the wall i heard behind me the careful step of bates good morning mr glenarm i trust you rested quite well sir his figure was as austere his tone as respectful and colourless as by night the morning light gave him a pallid cast he suffered my examination coolly enough his eyes were indeed the best thing about him this is what mr glenarm called the platform i believe it's in hamlet sir i laughed aloud elsinore a platform before the castle it was one of mr glenarm's little fancies you might call it sir and the ghost where does the murdered majesty of denmark lie by day i fear it has not been provided sir as you see mr glenarm the house is quite incomplete my late master had not carried out all his plans bates did not smile i fancied he never smiled and i wondered whether john marshall glenarm had played upon the man's lack of humour my grandfather had been possessed of a certain grim ironical gift at jesting and quite likely He had amused himself by experimenting upon his serving-man. "'You may breakfast when you like, sir.' And thus admonished, I went into the refectory. A newspaper lay at my plate. It was the morning's issue of a Chicago Daily. I was, then, not wholly out of the world, I reflected, scanning the headlines. "'Your grandfather rarely examined the paper. Mr. Glenarm was more particularly interested in the old times. He wasn't what you might call up to date, if you will pardon the expression, sir.' you are quite right about that bates he was a medievalist in his sympathies thank you for that word sir i've frequently heard him apply it to himself the plain omelette was a great favourite with your grandfather i hope it is to your liking sir it's excellent bates and your coffee is beyond praise thank you mr Glenarm. one does what one can sir he had placed me so that i faced the windows an attention to my comfort and safety which i appreciated the broken pane told the tale of the shot that had so narrowly missed me the night before i'll repair that to-day sir bates remarked seeing my eyes upon the window you know that i am to spend a year on this place i assume that you understand the circumstances i said feeling it wise that we should understand each other quite so mr glenarm i'm a student you know and all i want is to be left alone this i threw in to reassure myself rather than for his information It was just as well, I reflected, to assert a little authority, even though the fellow undoubtedly represented Pickering, and received orders from him. In a day or two, as soon as I have got used to the place, I shall settle down to work in the library. You may give me breakfast at seven-thirty, luncheon at one-thirty, and dinner at seven. Those were my late master's hours, sir. Very good. And I'll eat anything you please, except mutton broth, meat pie, and canned strawberries, "'Strawberries and tins-baits are not well calculated to lift the spirit of man.' "'I quite agree with you, sir, if you will pardon my opinion.' "'And the bills?' "'They are provided for by Mr. Pickering. He sends me an allowance for the household expenses.' "'So you are to report to him, are you, as heretofore?' I blew out a match, with which I had lighted a cigar, and watched the smoking end intently. "'I believe that's the idea, sir.' it is not pleasant to be under compulsion, to feel your freedom curtailed, to be conscious of espionage. I rose without a word and went into the hall. You may like to have the keys. There's two for the gates in the outer wall, and one for the St. Agatha's gate. They're marked, as you see. And here's the hall-door key and the boathouse key that you asked for last night. After an hour spent in unpacking, I went out into the grounds, I had thought it well to wire Pickering of my arrival, and I set out for Annandale to send him a telegram. My spirit lightened under the influences of the crisp air and cheering sunshine. What had seemed strange and shadowy at night was clear enough by day. I found the gate through which we had entered the grounds the night before without difficulty. The stone wall was assuredly no flimsy thing. It was built in a thoroughly workmanlike manner, and I mentally computed its probable cost with amazement. There were, I reflected, much more satisfactory ways of spending money than in building walls around Indiana forests. But the place was mine, or as good as mine, and there was no manner of use in quarrelling with the whims of my dead grandfather. At the expiration of a year I could tear down the wall if I pleased, and as to the incomplete house, that I should sell or remodel to my liking. On the whole I settled into an amiable state of mind, My perplexity over the shot of the night before was passing away under the benign influences of blue sky and warm sunshine. A few farm folk passed me in the highway and gave me good morning in the fashion of the country, inspecting my knickerbockers at the same time with frank disapproval. I reached the lake and gazed out upon its quiet waters with satisfaction. At the foot of Annandale's main street was a dock where several small steam craft and a number of catboats were being dismantled for the winter. As I passed, a man approached the dock in a skiff, landed, and tied his boat. He started toward the village at a quick pace, but turned and eyed me with rustic directness. "'Good morning,' I said. "'Any ducks about?' "'Nope. Not enough to pay for the trouble.' "'I'm sorry for that. I'd hoped to pick up a few.' "'I guess you're a stranger in these parts,' he remarked, eyeing me again, my knickerbockers no doubt marking me as an alien. "'Quite so. My name is Glenarm, and I've just come.' I thought you might be him. We've rather been expecting you here in the village. I'm John Morgan, caretaker of the resorters' houses up the lake. I suppose you all knew my grandfather hereabouts? Well, yes, you might say as we did, or you might say as we didn't. He wasn't just the sort you got next to in a hurry. He kept pretty much to himself. He built a wall there to keep us out, but he needn't have troubled himself. We're not the kind round here to meddle, and you may be sure the summer people never bothered him. There was a tone of resentment in his voice, and I hastened to say, "'I'm sure you're mistaken about the purposes of that wall. My grandfather was a student of architecture. It was a hobby of his. The house and wall were in the line of his experiments, and to please his whims. I hope the people of the village won't hold any hard feelings against his memory, or against me. Why, the labor there must have been a good thing for the people hereabouts.' "'It ought to have been,' said the man gruffly. "'But that's where the trouble comes in.' He bought a lot of queer fellows here under contract to work for him, Italians or Greeks or some sort of foreigners. They built the wall, and he had them at work inside for half a year. He didn't even let them out for air, and when they finished his job, he loaded them onto the train one day and hauled them away. "'That was quite like him, I'm sure,' I said, remembering with amusement my grandfather's secretive ways. "'I guess he was a crank, all right,' said the man conclusively." It was evident that he did not care to establish friendly relations with the resident of Glenarm. He was about forty, light, with a yellow beard and pale blue eyes. He was dressed roughly, and wore a shabby, soft hat. "'Well, I suppose I'll have to assume responsibility for him and his acts,' I remarked, piqued by the fellow's surliness. We had reached the centre of the village, and he left me abruptly, crossing the street to one of the shops. I continued on to the railway station— where I wrote and paid for my message. The station-master inspected me carefully as I searched my pockets for change. "'You want your telegrams delivered at the house?' he asked. "'Yes, please,' I answered, and he turned away to his desk of clicking instruments without looking at me again. It seemed wise to establish relations with the post-office, so I made myself known to the girl who stood at the delivery window. "'You already have a box,' she advised me. "'There's a boy, carries the mail to your house,' Mr. Bates hires him. Bates had himself given me this information, but the girl seemed to find pleasure in imparting it with a certain severity. I then bought a cake of soap at the principal drugstore and purchased a package of smoking tobacco, which I did not need, at a grocery. News of my arrival had evidently reached the villagers. I was conceited enough to imagine that my presence was probably of interest to them. But the station-master, the girl at the post-office, and the clerks in the shops treated me with an unmistakable cold reserve. There was a certain evenness of the chill which they visited upon me, as though a particular degree of frigidity had been determined in advance. I shrugged my shoulders and turned toward Glenarm. My grandfather had left me a cheerful legacy of distrust among my neighbours, the result, probably, of importing foreign labour to work on his house. The surly Morgan had intimated as much, but it did not greatly matter, I had not come to Glenarm to cultivate the rustics, but to fulfill certain obligations laid down in my grandfather's will. I was, so to speak, on duty, and I much preferred that the villagers should let me alone. Comforting myself with these reflections, I reached the wharf, where I saw Morgan sitting with his feet dangling over the water, smoking a pipe. I nodded in his direction, but he feigned not to see me. A moment later he jumped into his boat and rowed out into the lake when i returned to the house bates was at work in the kitchen this was a large square room with heavy timbers showing in the walls and low ceiling there was a great fireplace having an enormous chimney and fitted with a crane and bobs but for practical purposes a small range was provided bates received me placidly yes it's an unusual kitchen sir mr glenarm carpeted it from an old kitchen in england he took quite a pride in it it's a pleasant place to sit in the evening sir He showed me the way below, where I found that the cellar extended under every part of the house, and was divided into large chambers. The door of one of them was of heavy oak, bound in iron, with a barred opening at the top. A great iron hasp with a heavy padlock and grilled area windows gave further the impression of a cell, and I fear that at this, as at many other things in the curious house, I swore, if I did not laugh, thinking of the money my grandfather had expended in realizing his whims the room was used i noted with pleasure as a depository for potatoes i asked bates whether he knew my grandfather's purpose in providing a cell in his house that sir was another of the dead master's ideas he remarked to me once that it was just as well to have a dungeon in a well-appointed house his humor again sir and it comes in quite handy for the potatoes In another room I found a curious collection of lanterns of every conceivable description, grouped on shelves, and next door to this was a storeroom filled with brass candlesticks of many odd designs. I shall not undertake to describe my sensations as, peering about with a candle in my hand, the vagaries of John Marshall Glenarm's mind were further disclosed to me. It was almost beyond belief that any man with such whims should ever have had the money to gratify them. I returned to the main floor and studied the titles of the books in the library, finally smoking a pipe over a very tedious chapter in an exceedingly dull work on Norman revivals and influences. Then I went out, assuring myself that I should get steadily to work in a day or two. It was not yet eleven o'clock, and time was sure to move deliberately, within the stone walls of my prison. The long winter lay before me, in which I must study perforce, and just now it was pleasant to view the landscape in all its autumn splendour. Bates was soberly chopping wood at a rough pile of timber at the rear of the house. His industry had already impressed me. He had the quiet ways of an ideal serving-man. Well, Bates, you don't intend to let me freeze to death, do you? There must be enough in that pile there to last all winter. Yes, sir. I am just cutting a little more of the hickory, sir. Mr. Glenarm always preferred it to beech or maple. We only take out the old timber, The summer storm's eat into the wood pretty bad, sir. Oh, hickory, to be sure. I've heard it's the best firewood. That's very thoughtful of you. I turned next to the unfinished tower in the meadow, from which a windmill pumped water to the house. The iron frame was not wholly covered with stone, but material for the remainder of the work lay scattered at the base. I went on through the wood to the lake and inspected the boathouse. It was far more pretentious than I had imagined from my visit in the dark. It was of two stories, the upper half being a cozy lounging-room, with wide windows and a fine outlook over the water. The unplastered walls were hung with Indian blankets, lounging-chairs and a broad seat under the windows, colored matting on the floor, and a few prints pinned upon the Navajos gave further color to the place. I followed the pebbly shore to the stone wall where it marked the line of the school grounds. The wall, I observed, was of the same solid character here as along the road. I tramped beside it, reflecting that my grandfather's estate, in the heart of the Republic, would some day give the lie to foreign complaints that we have no ruins in America. I had assumed that there was no opening in the wall, but halfway to the road I found an iron gate, fastened with chain and padlock, by means of which I climbed to the top. The pillars at either side of the gate were of huge dimensions, and were higher than I could reach. An intelligent forester had cleared the wood in the school grounds, which were of the same general character as the Glenarm estate. The little Gothic church near at hand was built of stone similar to that used in Glenarm House. As I surveyed the scene, a number of young women came from one of the school buildings, and forming in twos and fours, walked back and forth in a rough path that led to the chapel. A sister clad in a brown habit lingered near, or walked first with one and then another of the students. It was all very pretty and interesting and not at all the ugly school for paupers i had expected to find the students were not the charity children i had carelessly pictured they were not so young for one thing and they seemed to be apparelled decently enough i smiled to find myself adjusting my scarf and straightening my collar as i beheld my neighbours for the first time as i sat thus on the wall i heard the sound of angry voices back of me on the glenarm side and a crash of underbrush marked a flight in pursuit I crouched down on the wall and waited. In a moment a man plunged through the wood and stumbled over a low-hanging vine and fell, not ten yards from where I lay. To my great surprise it was Morgan, my acquaintance of the morning. He rose, cursed his ill-luck, and, hugging the wall close, ran toward the lake. Instantly the pursuer broke into view. It was Bates, evidently much excited, and with an ugly cut across his forehead. He carried a large club and after listening for a moment for sounds of the enemy, he hurried after the caretaker. It was not my row, though I must say it quickened my curiosity. I straightened myself out, threw my legs over the school side of the wall, and lighted a cigar, feeling cheered by the opportunity the stone barricade offered for observing the world. As I looked off toward the little church, I found two other actors appearing on the scene. A girl stood in the little opening of the wood, talking to a man. Her hands were thrust into the pockets of her covert coat. She wore a red tam-o'-shanter that made a bright bit of color in the wood. They were not more than twenty feet away, but a wild growth of young maples lay between us, screening the wall. Their profiles were toward me, and the tones of the girl's voice reached me clearly as she addressed her companion. He wore a clergyman's high waistcoat, and I assumed that he was the chaplain whom Bates had mentioned. "'I am not by nature an eavesdropper.' but the girl was clearly making a plea of some kind and the chaplain's stalwart figure awoke in me an antagonism that held me to the wall if he comes here i shall go away so you may as well understand it and tell him i shan't see him under any circumstances and i am not going to florida or california or anywhere else in a private car no matter who chaperones it certainly not unless you want to certainly not said the chaplain you understand that i am only giving you his message "'He thought it best.' "'Not to write me, or Sister Teresa?' interrupted the girl contemptuously. "'What a clever man he is!' "'And how unclever I am!' said the clergyman, laughing. "'Well, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to present his message.' She smiled, nodded, and turned swiftly toward the school. The chaplain looked after her for a few moments, then walked away soberly toward the lake. He was a young fellow, clean-shaven and dark, with a pair of shoulders that gave me a twinge of envy. I could not guess how great a factor that vigorous figure was to be in my own affairs. As I swung down from the wall and walked toward Glenarm House, my thoughts were not with the athletic chaplain, but with the girl, whose youth was, I reflected, marked by her short skirt, the unconcern with which her hands were thrust into the pockets of her coat, and the irresponsible tilt of the tam-o'-shanter, there was something jaunty a suggestion of spirit and independence in a tam-o'-shanter particularly a red one if the red tam-o'-shanter expressed so to speak the keynote of st agatha's the proximity of the school was not so bad a thing after all in high good-humor and with a sharp appetite i went in to luncheon